You're with us this morning, whether in person or joining us uh, online. And let me just encourage you that if uh, you are a guest with us, or uh, maybe you are here this morning and you've been contemplating what it is to have a personal relationship with Christ and what it means to be a follower of Christ, we would love to, to talk with you about that and what that means and all the implications of that. So we do hope that you will take the time to text FL Respond to that uh, number that is available to you on the screen. And and uh, yeah, we don't have it right now. So anyway, there's a number out there somewhere. You can look it up uh, online and uh, I'm sure our guys have it on their disposal. I know it's all over Facebook and our online uh, streaming and all of that. We just can't get it in here. All right. There's an, old, there's an old adage that says, what in Rome do as the Romans do. Now that uh, the story behind that is that it was stated by St. Ambrose. Apparently there was an occasion uh, where St. Monica, who is the mother of St. Augustine or Augustine, was, they were on one occasion traveling from, from Milan to, to Rome. And uh, St. Monica approached St. Ambrose and asked what she should do because uh, their trip was going to have them in Rome on a Saturday and she understood that in Rome they fast on Saturdays and so what should I do since I'm going to be there? And uh, Ambrose's response was, was that, well, when I'm here on Saturday, I don't fast in Milan, but when I'm in Rome, uh, I fast. And so came about the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And so it's about, it's about accommodating yourself to the traditions and the practices of the particular culture where you find yourself. Now, Paul, of course, would not say that that adage applies to the church. In fact, Paul would say to the church, and what he does say through the entirety of the book of Romans is that you are to have a much bigger vision as the people of God. As the house churches that are there in Rome, we know in chapter 16, if you were to jump ahead to chapter 16 in Romans, uh, we see that he addresses at least five house churches uh, specifically uh, that are there in Rome. And so Paul has a much grander vision and he wants them to understand the greater vision of, of what it is to be a part of a kingdom, an empire other than the Roman empire. That as the Roman Empire continues to expand, I want you to have a vision for another empire. That is for the kingdom of God and the unique position that you have as a church in Rome to be a part of a greater ministry and a greater vision for the expansion of God's kingdom. You're here on a good Sunday because we are beginning uh, today to go through the book of Romans. We're going to embrace this task, and uh, I think it is uh, an effort worth doing. I've, as I've announced this over several weeks that, it, that I'm doing Romans, there's been some interesting feedback from people that uh, understand Romans to be a, a very difficult book. That's their understanding, or they've started reading it before, and it just became too burdensome, too heavy, and uh, really could. So they just quit reading it altogether. And, and I understand how that, how that can, can come about. Romans has had, a, has had an influential impact on a great number of lives throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. Augustine, for instance, he wrote about his conversion experience, the influence of the book of Romans, a particular part of the book of, of Romans. Uh, by the time you come to the 16th century reformers, uh, there are those that are influenced greatly by their reading of the book of Romans. Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, later John Wesley uh, would write about the influence of the book of Romans and their understanding of, of what it is to have a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And there are some that have tried, sadly, there are some that have tried to colonize parts 
hijack or colonize certain parts of Romans uh, for, their, for their theological preferences. But, but, but what I'm going to do and, what I, and the approach that I'm taking is just a historical grammatical understanding of the reading of, of the book of Romans. Uh, Romans had a long, rich, robust history that has gone back 2,000 years. The understanding of Romans didn't emerge 500 years ago with the 16th century reformers. There was a long, robust history and understanding of what Romans is seeking to communicate, what Paul is seeking to write as he's sitting in Corinth, uh, writing to the church at Rome. Paul has a much grander vision, and a part of this in our appropriate understanding of Romans comes from our understanding of the heart of Paul, missionary to the Gentiles. Paul's primary concern, his heartbeat, is the expansion of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel to those that have never heard it before. And so you have to keep that in mind as you begin reading. There's, there's a narrative that runs through Romans that really isn't that complex. Let me tell you why you think Romans is difficult. The reason you think Romans is difficult, and anyone thinks Romans is difficult, the only reason people think that is because scholarly theologians have made it so. Scholarly theologians have hijacked the book of Romans and made you think that it's difficult. And it's not. Not if you understand the cultural context, the issues, if you have some understanding of the Old Testament, you can decipher very easily. Remember, Paul is not writing to scholarly theologians. That's not his audience. Paul is is writing to a gathering of people not unlike you and me. In fact, it's a pretty representation, pretty good representation. When Paul three or four times later in the book of Romans mentions the strong and, and the weak uh, it's not unlike those of you that, that were raised up in church and have certain, certain traditions and expectations of your Christian religion as opposed to someone like me who didn't grow up in a tradition and came in somewhat like a Gentile, someone with no background whatsoever in what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to a people of diverse backgrounds. But it's a a letter that when he wrote it to them, they understood it. They understood his point. Now, what I see in this, what Paul is doing, especially as we're, what we're going to do today is we're just going to take the first seven verses of Romans 1, and we're just going to start marching through this thing. And as I read Romans chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7, this, these verses, this is just what's called the greeting. It's part of the epistolary tradition. It's the tradition of ancient letter writing where Paul identifies, where the writer identifies themselves. But what you need to understand is that in these seven verses, what Paul does is his greeting is, is 10 times longer than any other greeting in any other letter. His greeting in Romans 1 is 10 times longer than any of his other greetings in his other letters. And so understanding the heartbeat of Paul, knowing that he wants the church of Rome to be involved in the expansion of the, of the gospel message going westward all the way to Spain. Let me give you a little perspective. Let's go over to Romans chapter 15. And you get a good depiction of, of Paul's heartbeat here. It says in verse 19, we see, we see the extent of Paul's preaching here in verse 19, in the power of signs, 
and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem all the way, all around as far as Illyricum, I have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. From stem to stern, far and wide, I have preached the gospel to Jesus Christ. And in this way, I aspired to preach the gospel, not, not where Christ was already known by name. Paul's not interested in going in and just retracing another man's works. Paul wants to go into those areas that have never heard the gospel before. And in this way, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already known by name, so that I would not build on another person's foundation. But just as it is written, those who have not been told about him will see. And they who have not heard will understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come, to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, and that's Paul's ambition, the westward expansion of the gospel message. And his goal is to get to Spain. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Familiar with Acts, you're familiar with Paul's writing. Paul is taking up a famine relief offering for the saints back in Jerusalem, sitting in Corinth, in Corinth right now, writing this letter. He has been appealing to the Gentile churches to take advantage of this unique opportunity. Show your sibling relationship with the mother church back in Jerusalem. Let's support our brethren, our siblings who are struggling. But then notice down in, in verse 28, therefore, when I finish this, and if put my seal in this first fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I will go on by way of you to Spain. So Paul is preparing the stage for his, for his vision of the Western expansion of the gospel message. And he's saying to the church at Rome, as he would say it to us, it's going to happen by you. You, the church at Rome, you need to have a, you need to have a bigger understanding of what God has in store for you. You need to have a vision that goes, by your, that goes far beyond your difficulties and your present persecution that you are facing. Listen, God wants to use you be a part of the Western expansion of, of the gospel message. And so for me, when I just read the letter of Romans naturally, and I see that, that Paul's greeting is 10 times longer than any other letter, remember Paul did not establish the church at Rome. And while there are some individuals in Rome in these five house churches, there's maybe 100, 150 Christians total in Rome. There, there is some crossover where, where Paul knows some people and some people know Paul and they're, they're able to speak for Paul and, and to advocate Paul. But, but Paul is, is offering a greeting 10 times longer because I think he's trying to establish credibility in their eyes. Not that he needs it. Not that it's being questioned. It would be no different than us as a church or as a pastor when, you know, on a weekly basis, we, we receive solicitations 
from all kinds of ministries, literally from around the world, that want us to buy in, that want us to be a part, letters that say things like God has laid it on our heart, laid it on my heart for First Baptist Church Lubbock to be a part of this ministry that your church can play a vital role in fulfilling what God has laid on our heart. We may bring some of those things to our staff meeting and we'll throw it out there and we'll say things like, hey, you ever heard of this? You ever heard of this guy? Have you ever heard of of this group? Does anybody here know what what they do? Does anybody here know what they're about? Does anybody here know what they believe? Because, see, we, we, want, we want individuals and organizations with whom we partner, we, we want them that, that are credible, that are, not, that are not charlatans. And so I see Paul setting forth here credibility of his life, of his apostleship, and his ministry. And you say, well, Bobby, what does this have to do with us? Because the credibility that Paul is establishing are the same things that are necessary if you and I are to have credibility out in the world. The same things that Paul outlines here in these first seven verses, these things that he says establish his credibility of his apostleship, of his ministry, are the very same things necessary for you and I to have credibility as we go out into the world and claim to be followers of Christ. Well, what are they? Let's walk through these. The first thing is a settled identity. The first thing that is necessary for you and I, if we're going to be a distinguished people, a unique people out there in this world, it means that I, as a follower of Christ, I've settled my identity once and for all. Now, Paul would say it this way in verse 1. Now, notice the three expressions that Paul uses here. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, all three of these expressions capture well Paul's strong sense of self-identity. Paul's not like the great many people in our world that you hear so often are trying, I'm just trying to find myself. I'm just trying to find my place in life. I'm just, you know, I'm just on a quest to figure out who I am. Not for Paul. His encounter with Christ, his conversion experience with Christ on the Damascus Road, in Paul's mind, this defines who I am. I'm a bondservant. Doulos is the word in the Greek. It means some of your translations may even have the word word slave. Now think about Paul's specific use here. What Paul is doing, it's really twofold. Paul is writing to a people in Rome. uh, The numbers are that one, that, that, Three out of five is the number that is used. Three out of five are of, a, are of a slave status. Now, in a culture like the Roman Empire that, that revered individual time and doxa, that is honor and glory and even ancient Greek literature, that is, the, that is the prevailing theme. That is always the theme of conflict when someone has been robbed of their, of their honor and their glory. So for Paul to identify as a slave is really nothing noble in, in, a, in Roman eyes. But what Paul is doing here, you know, you go back to the Old Testament, Paul is identifying himself with the greats of Israel from, from Abraham to Moses to Jonah to David, the prophets who all had the title ascribed to them, the servant 
of the Lord. And so Paul counts himself among that great company that proclaimed the good news of God. I'm a bondservant. And when his audience heard that, their mind understood what it was to be a slave. They understood that a slave, that a bondservant was someone that could claim no exclusive rights of their own, but were fully obliged to a master. What a contrast to our day and time. Sadly, even in the church in America, these past two years, how often have we heard the rhetoric emerging even from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the number of individuals who hold forth their individual rights is somehow the greatest good, the highest good. Oh, this is, this is a hijacking of our individual rights. This is a hijacking of our, of our civil liberties. What a contrast to Paul who said, I'm a slave. I'm a bondservant. I claim no exclusive rights of my own. If you're familiar with Edward Gib Gibbon's six-volume work on the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, this very issue is at the heart of it. Where the greater good was no longer sought. And it's uncanny the parallels when you see and you read about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and what is happening in our nation today. There is a parallel to be followed. Where individuals no longer act, no longer make decisions for a greater community good, the greater good of everyone, and individuals who are now concerned about their, their own rights. Culminating in what Edward Gibbon says, the fall of the Roman Empire, not because of external attack, but internal decay, rotting from the inside out, from the stench of selfishness. Everyone seeking after their own desires and their own pleasures. Paul says, I'm not figuring out who I am. I'm not trying to figure out what group I fit in with. I'm not figuring out what group will receive me. What social group can I be a part of? Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. The other phrase he uses here is one we all should, should understand. He speaks of being called, called to be, to be an apostle. Apostle is a messenger. An apostle is, is uh, in that context, it's, a, it's an eyewitness messenger, someone who, who could bear eyewitness testimony to the person of, of Christ. But what we need to understand is that each and every one of us who count ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, we are nonetheless called. Our calling is the same as, as the Apostle Paul. You, you responded and you said yes to becoming a follower of Christ, becoming a Christian and being, becoming a follower of Christ because the Holy Spirit has touched your heart and has called you. It's not because you were raised in church. It's not because of some influential person. They, they may have been messengers. They may have been someone that came alongside you at some season of life and, and talked to you about the things of God. But when, you, but when you come to that place of decision in your life where you say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that is the Holy Spirit at work in you. No less 
than the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And that sense of calling brings us not only to a place of faith, but it also brings us to a place where we are sensitive to the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the choices and decisions we make on a daily basis. Then Paul says, you know what? My self-identity, it's not just based upon being a bondservant, not just being called as an apostle, but also that I have been set apart for the gospel of God. Paul and Barnabas were set aside, ordained by the church at Antioch. And they, each one, would go and have their, what was once together, once, uh, then became separate ministries, which, which flourished, which providentially was even necessary in, in the furtherance of, of the gospel. But to understand the language of set-apart church is for us to have this comprehension. When, when you and I are set-apart, when I have an understanding of what it is to be set-apart by God for the gospel of God, That means I have an understanding that everything that has occurred in my life, everything from my birth, Paul would see that as his his being set apart in the book of Galatians, set apart from his mother, from the womb. It's a perspective on life that sees that everything that happens to me is providential. Everything that has happened to me is providentially used by God in a formative way to bring me to where I am now to be the most effective minister where my feet are, the most effective follower of Christ, the most influential follower of Christ that I can be right now in the circles around me. And it's all because of everything that has happened in my life. God uses it for such a time is this. You see, the fact that I'm set apart, the fact that you're set apart, that we each one individually understand what it is that I'm set apart, it means that I can effectively minister because of everything that has happened in my life, all of my experiences, I'm better equipped to minister in these circles around me than you are. Just as you're better equipped because of all of your providential circumstances, you're better equipped to minister in those circles around you in such a time as this than I ever could. Imagine the influence of the church in the world if each one of us understood what it is to be set apart by God and the collective influence and impact it would have for the gospel of Christ in our world. Paul's credibility emerges from a settled identity. That he is committed solely to this call upon his life. There's a second thing that was necessary for Paul to set forth and and also for us. (laughs) And not just a settled identity, but also a settled gospel. Notice there in that last part of, of verse one again, he says, set apart for the gospel of God, which, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and, and Paul's going to expound upon this in, in further chapters, especially in, in verses nine, uh, chapters 9 through 11, he'll expound upon this further. When he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says, the uniqueness of my gospel, my good news, euangelion is, is the Greek word. In Romans, we're used to hearing good news, that word being used, euangelion, a proclamation of, of good news. And usually those, those proclamations, it, it was just, uh, uh, you know, they, they had grown cynical to the proclamations of the Roman Empire. It was about the expansion of the Roman Empire or the birth of some, of some heir of, of Caesar. And it was usually in the, in the form of, of propaganda being used by the Roman government to keep people, to keep people under, under subjection. But Paul says, here's the uniqueness of mine. This is the gospel of God. This is everything you have looked for, as he says here in, in verse 2. This is everything. This is the fulfillment. This gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the fulfillment of everything promised beforehand in Scripture. This message I preach isn't separate and apart. This isn't an annulment of, of God's covenants to Israel. In fact, everything that was anticipated, if, if you have a right reading of, of the Old Testament, and that's what Paul is actually doing, he's offering some correction here, some right understanding of these ancient Old Testament scriptures. This was God's plan all along that, that the Gentiles were going to be grafted in, into Israel. That Israel isn't, you aren't Israel by flesh, you're, you're Israel by faith. And I'll expound upon this further. But this gospel that, that I preach, this is the fulfillment of every promise and every covenant that was ever made to Israel. And so we should never think of it in terms of something as, as, as doing away with the old, but it is in fact the fulfillment of everything that, that God has said. Now, why would Paul be so emphatic? And, and Paul is emphatic. In fact, most of us would, uh, in today's climate, we would think Paul's hard-headed. He, he, he has no wiggle room whatsoever for any other kind of gospel, understanding the gospel, than it being the fulfillment of the purposes of God accomplished through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He, has, he is absolutely immovable, on that point. And he had his enemies because of it. There were those that were constantly trying to undermine Paul. They would, they would come in, the Judaizers, for instance, would come in after Paul and say, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, Paul's right, you know, uh, salvation by grace through faith. But listen, there, there also needs, we, we don't want to neglect the Torah. Torah still needs to be centerpiece. You still need to labor and work to fulfill to fulfill. The Torah, and so, so Paul had the enemies of, of the gospel message that, that he was proclaiming. But Paul's quandary is, why would you ever go back and try to undo or add to the very thing that gave you freedom? You so gladly received this gospel of God, accomplished, fulfilled in the person exclusively of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Why would you want to go back and add to that? 
because it's human nature. Human nature is always wanting to go back. Oh, let's back up a little bit. Let's, let's add circumcision back, back to this. Let's add Torah back to this. Uh, let, let's go back to Israel. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go, let's go back to, to that which was predictable and traditional and, and known. Heard an interesting interview on leadership a few weeks ago. It was Nick Saban, uh, the head coach of, of Alabama, had great success there. And, and he talked about this very issue. He said, you know, we, we have this process. And he said, what we, what we coach and what we teach is this process. And if you discipline yourself to the process, and he's, and he's immovable on his process. He is unwavering. There is no wiggle room. He's, he's quick to say that if you become a blinking light in my program, calling attention to yourself, he said, we put out blinking lights. We don't need blinking lights. He said, we, we are committed to this process. And the assurance is if you will commit to this process, this will be the outcome. Outcome will take care of itself. But he said, you know what's inevitable? He said, without fail, every national championship. He said, we come back after winning the national championship. We come back in the spring for spring ball. And he said, you know what I get is resistance. Players who, because they've won the national championship, think they no longer need to do what it, what it took to get here. I don't want to do it. Why should I have to do that anymore? I've won a national championship. And there is always that pushback that wants to get away from the very thing that gave you success, the very thing that gave you victory. Paul says, listen, when I come to you, my hope is, is that you will support me. And I, I give you this assurance. The gospel message that brought you to faith, that's why Paul said to the 1 Corinthians 15, I preach to you of first importance, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says to the church at Rome, you can be assured that my gospel is settled. My message is not going to change. You don't have to worry that if you give me monies that you support me in my going, that once I get out of Rome, I'm going to accommodate the culture. Listen, you don't have to worry about my philosophy of ministry and my messaging changing based on the last book I read. I'm not going to change my mind on the message that God has given to me. It's not going to be based, and it's not going to change based upon the next book I read. It's not going to change based upon the next popular personality on a podcast that I listen to. This message is going to be unwavering. It is settled once and for all. And a final thing that gives him credibility is a settled purpose. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, here's the reason, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.
We're going out to call people and to challenge people to an obedient response. Now, there's some people even to this day that that don't like the idea of, of, of works. And this is not salvation by works who don't even like the language of obedience, who would prefer just to use the the message of grace. But it's undeniable in the writings of Paul that faith is only sufficiently evidenced through obedience in the life that is being pursued, not so much the confession that we make with our mouth. Talk is cheap. There's no cheaper talk than religious talk. But faith is evidenced, it is proved out best by obedience to the things of God. And as he will say to them, you don't need to be taught in this. You understand this. I'm just offering you an assurance of this is where I am. I'm with you on this. And you as as the Christians, as the house churches in Rome, churches that are made up of Gentiles, that are made up of, of Jewish believers, Listen, your church represents the kind of diversity that is necessary for the continuing Western expansion of the Christian faith. The gospel that is being held forth, listen, I love the language he used here, who, who in verse 7, to all who are beloved of God. That we are the saints. He's saying that to a collection of people of diverse background. He's saying that that faith and what it is to be the people of God, you understand it, you get it. Uh, You are not the family of God because because of birthright. You're not the people of of God because because of your ethnicity. You get that. But we are now all... Israel by faith. We are all Israel by an obedient response to God who took the initiative to fulfill his covenants in Christ Jesus. And it's these things, a settled identity with a settled gospel and a settled purpose, just as these things would give credibility to Paul In his life and his ministry, it will give credibility to ours as well in the world. Let's pray together. Father, how blessed we are to be a part of this high holy calling, to be a people who have truly been set apart, determined to be a people who are bond slaves to Christ Jesus, that ours might truly be a unique presence in the world. So, Father, I pray that as we go forth into our respective worlds, that people would recognize and deem upon us a credibility of faith, a faith that is real, a faith that is genuine, a faith that actually informs our lives, that sets us apart from others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.